HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This piece is brought to you in conjunction with the Food Book Fair. The Food Book Fair is supported by Squarespace. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. So before we get into the show, I want, I want to get a little something off my chest. Uh, I went to the premiere of Farmland last week. Um, Farmland is a movie that profiles six farmers from across the country um, trying to bring light to the issues facing agriculture today. And I really went into the film with no preconceived notions. I wasn't really sure what it was going to be about. And I'm always a hypercritical consumer of these things. So as I'm sitting through the film, I'm thinking, you know, I'm really wanting to like be like, ah, no, they're getting it wrong. But what I felt myself thinking was, wow, they're really touching on some interesting issues that I never see covered um, in any kind of popular media form about farming. Uh, I was particularly impressed by, they really got the message across of, you know, farming being a business. They touched a lot on the kind of difficulties of farm transition, you know, moving a farm from one generation to the next and farms as family businesses that are dynamic and include challenges like, you know, imagine your entire life working with your mom or your dad or your sisters and brothers, um, living with them, living next to them. There's a lot that's amazing about that and there's a lot that's super challenging. Um, I also thought they put a really great... um, light on large-scale farmers. Um, I feel so often in the media, there's this kind of us-them language. Uh, large-scale producers are often incredibly demonized. And, and I think that this doesn't do service to our movement. It, it keeps them removed from us. It keeps them other. And what I really think we need to be doing is creating more spaces for all the current stakeholders in food production to be coming to the table. Um, I really thought the, the the film fell short with regards to animal welfare um, coverage. You know, there there wasn't really a, a pasture-based alternative. Um, you know, they talked about organics. They talked about commodities. They talked about uh, CSA farming. But when it came to kind of the animal welfare, they really only focused on confinement operations. Um, and, I, and I thought that was definitely a weakness in the film. And then, you know, the film breaks, and we go out to the reception, and I find myself talking to the film's funders. That's the the Farmers and Ranchers Alliance, the U.S. Farmers and Ranchers Alliance. And I was talking to the chair of their board, and I'm like, well, who who sits on the alliance? And it's the national pork producers and the national soybean farmers and the national be- corn farmers. 
And immediately alarm bells go off in my head. And I'm like, whoa, did I just get totally hoodwinked? Did I just watch a really well done advertisement for commodity farming? Um, and I couldn't quite tell. And I, and I still can't quite tell. And, and I'm hopeful that um, people will go out and, and watch the film and react to it. People on both sides of the food production aisle. And that hopefully, um, I think success would really look like in this case, sparking a real conversation about you know what's happening in agriculture today. Uh, I just wanted to share that I want to put out a call for feedback. I would love uh, for folks to send me their thoughts on the film and um, their response, their response to my response. Definitely shoot an email. It's just Aaron at heritageradionetwork.org. And with that, we're going to tuck in to the rest of the show. All right. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Heritage Radio Network. We are coming to you, as always, from the back of Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn. You're listening to The Farm Report, and I'm your host, Erin Fairbanks. And today, we are on the line with Scott Chasky. Scott is a poet, farmer, and educator, and we're going to talk a little bit about his new book, Seed Time, on the history, husbandry, politics, and promise of seeds and a little bit about his upcoming talk at the Food Book Fair, which is happening next weekend. Scott's talk is going to be on Sunday, April 27th. So definitely, if we whet your appetite, uh, get your tickets at www.foodbookfair.com. Scott, welcome to the show. Uh, hi, Aaron. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. So I have to ask, you know, what prompted the book? You know, why seeds? Why a book? Why now? Well, I, um, I, I, I did write, I've been, uh, you know, working in community-supported agriculture for, well, this is our 25th year at this farm, Quail Hill Farm, and uh, I, I did write a book previously um, called This Common Ground, and it was really about the experience of, of, of starting as a gardener and finding community farming and about the growing movement of community-supported agriculture around the country, and... Um, you know, I I was ready to write another book, and uh, it, it's it sort of you know was an organic process. I mean, it it came out of the seeds that I handled daily for you know the last thirty years. And when I started writing it, I had slightly different focus. But when I realized the what a vast subject it was and how uh, intensely important it was right at this moment, uh, that sort of led me further into the research and and the Therefore, I w wound up spending time on the history and and, uh, and the politics as well as the magic of seeds, which is what, what I started with, basically. And you definitely touch on all those subjects uh, throughout the book. I want to, before we kind of continue, can you tell us a little bit about Quail Hill Farm? Now, you're out in Amagansett, New York, um, and you're working the land for the Peconic Land Trust. So for folks who aren't familiar with the farm, can you just give us a little bit of, of a lay of the land, so to speak? Yeah, I can certainly do that. I'm looking out at the beech woods as we speak, and uh, so we're on a 200 and 
20-acre preserve, uh, preserved by the Peconic Land Trust. And I'm actually a sort of a rare breed. I'm a salaried farmer. I, I work for the conservation organization, the Peconic Land Trust. And the Peconic Land Trust has preserved or conserved um, about 10,000 acres of land on the east end of Long Island. And, and 25 years ago, we created something unusual. At that time, we were the only ones doing it in the country. Um, since then, other people are, are, you know, are trying experiments of the same sort of combination, which is a marriage of a conservation organization and a community farm. So the CSA uh, got going two years before it arrived here at Quail Hill, and we're in Amagansett. For those who don't know, it's um, the last stop before Montauk, so we're you know 85 miles out from New York City, uh, and we we created this marriage between the conservation organization and the and the community farm, and we've run it for 25 years. Um, the unusual thing about this particular farm is that most CSAs deliver to pick up sites or, you know, uh, bring uh, produce into the city, uh, but our members actually come two days a week and harvest all their own, all their own food. Wow, that's so. So you're getting a little labor along with your along yeah. with your food. Yes, I mean what, that's if you look at it as a cooperative, we're we're all in it together, and the farmer's job is to, you know, do the ordering and the planting and the major cultivating and all that sort of thing, and the member's job is to actually do the harvesting. So, for your talk at the food book fair, you guys are going to be looking at food farming and scale, kind of thinking in particular about organic food and, and how to make it accessible at a larger scale. And I, and I want to talk a little bit today about something in that kind of same area, this, these ideas of scale. And when I'm thinking about seeds and, and the way that we um, use them and save them and buy and sell them, particularly in the U.S., it's changed a lot in, in the not-too-distant um you know, past. And I want to talk a little bit about kind of who have been winners and who have been losers in that transition and, and get a little bit of a sense of who the kind of stakeholders are. And if maybe you can paint a little bit in broad strokes of the kind of picture of, of the changing uh, arena of, of seeds in this country. Mm. Well, I, you know, the, the, if you're talking about losers and winners, I mean, the losers are really all of us because, um, we, uh, as, um, Carrie Fowler put it, we're in a, a mass extinction event. We're witnessing a mass, mass extinction event in agriculture, um, and that's the loss of biodiversity. And, and, and what we need, what we all need is, uh, a, a greater resource, uh, a, a more diverse resource of, of seeds, which are really the foundation of agriculture. And um, I like Vandana Shiva's phrase, which she repeats often, which is um, seed freedom. And uh, we need the opposite of what has become, uh, you know, the industrial agriculture uh, paradigm, which is to patent seeds and to uh, halt the free exchange, the free flow of, of seeds. And what we need is the opposite. We need a greater, a greater flow of, of seeds between people and between uh, farmers and, and nations, etc. And we need to uh, uh, create more biodiversity, not to, not to demean it. 
And uh, so that's sort of where we are. Um, it's, as I said before, it's such a vast subject. I mean, you know, when you get into the subject of, of hybrids, I mean, that which began, you know, early in the 20th century, um, the hybrid hybridization process, there's nothing nothing inherently wrong in that, and we use hybrid seeds on this farm as well, but what's happened is that the open-pollinated seed supply has diminished um, incredibly, so what we really need to do is focus upon, upon that, upon building up the open-pollinated population, and farmer-to-farmer, uh, farmer and, you know, state-to-state, nation-to-nation, that sort of thing. And then, of course, you get into the uh, subject of genetic engineering, and that's uh, a whole other realm. Um, anyhow, <laughs> well, 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 it's a big topic. Let's, yeah, well, let's, let's see where we go next. Yeah, yeah, well, let's kind of let's you know kind of tuck into some of those areas a little bit. So the the shift from the shift towards hybrids happened for a reason, and, and my understanding is that the way it was sold to farmers, the way that was sold, you know, vis-a-vis farmers to consumers, is you're going to get greater yields. Yes, and more reliability, more reliability. So when you're looking for certain traits uh, for whatever reason, um, uh, there's something called hybrid vigor, which, uh, which you know, is, uh, puts new life into a variety for one year only because the, the, the problem there is that you can't reliably save the seeds of hybrids. So then the farmer is, is then forced into a relationship with a seed company. And um, that, you know, could be a problem and could not be. It mostly is a problem. Um, so that's one, one angle. Um, and then, uh, you know, there's a further angle of control from the seed company. Well, the basic, you know, when you get into genetic engineering, so really the basis of the whole thing is that less and less control is in the hands of the farmer and more and more in control of, of uh, larger corporations. And farmers essentially were willing at some point to give up this control in, in exchange for... In, increased yields in, in in exchange for producing a greater volume of of crops and and my sense is that the you know if we're th- thinking in this kind of context of like winners losers that like and and the different types of stakeholders is that 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 changes o- over time as kind of the realities of the exchange become more and more clear and and then we start i think losing things and and Losing um, this seed heritage, losing these different species as we become, we become more and more dependent on fewer and fewer sources to, to purchase our seeds. Um, am I, does that sound about right? Yeah, no, that's right. No, you're right. And really, when we're talking about, you know, when I was talking about biodiversity, of course, I'm talking about natural diversity, but we need all kinds of diversity, <laughs> you know, and so that, you know, when we're talking about seed purveyors, uh, you know, we need more and more seed purveyors. And, and in the book, the promise of, of, you know, which is part of the subtitle, the promise is really the work that's going on sort of grassroots around this country outside of the, the land grants who have largely given up on... There's just a revival now in the land grants, which is, which is sort of exciting. But, you know, the organic 
process of uh, of uh, farmers teaching other farmers and a few you know brilliant breeders going into uh, the whole putting energy and time and resources into uh, breeding the open pollinated varieties because that hasn't happened in the last 50 years or so. So there's a couple of great people, uh, John Navazio um, out west and Frank Morton, who uh, are working on, on educating uh, n- new breeders and, and farmers in, you know, the ancient art, which has is, is mostly gotten lost. So that's really what we've, we've, we've lost the art of, of, of saving seed, um, which used to be something quite common. And, and uh, we oh, almost something, need to bring it back. Yes, I would say something that just was the way, there was no alternative way to do things. That's true. So, That's true. That's how things went for about 9,750 years. <laughs> you know, um, yeah. So. so the change we're talking about has happened in the, in the scale and the scope of agriculture incredibly quickly. Very, very quickly, and that's not, you know, I mean, that's how things happen in, a, in a, an age um, that embraces technology in the way that we have. But the important thing to remember is that, you know, um, agriculture is practiced throughout the world, and in other parts of the world it's still done quite differently than it is in this country. We, we've been very good at exporting, uh, you know, one way of doing things, but um, perhaps we should take a look at... Uh, learning from, you know, the techniques which um, uh, have been, you know, serving uh, mankind quite well for, for thousands and thousands of years. So, so, I mean, when you look at the, when you're talking about scale, um, we don't hear very often, what we hear is that, you know, we've got to produce more food to feed the world, and, and that's sort of on our, our plate, as they say. But, um, you know, 70% of the world's food is actually produced by small farmers. Not many people hear that kind of statistic. We usually hear the others. So. Well, you said something earlier that I want to come back to um, with regards to land, land-grant colleges, and this was something I thought that kind of popped out to me uh, at the beginning part of your book where you're talking about the institutional frameworks that are supporting a pr- particular type of production. And, and you mentioned land-grant colleges and you mentioned industrial egg. And I'm wondering if you can... Tell us a little bit about what you what you mean by that. What that means for you? Well, the land grant you know uh, institutions were created in the late 19th century to basically to serve farmers. And I think I I think I, I quoted uh, in the beginning of the book that um, one of the main focuses of the land grants originally was to um, uh, hand out seed to to farmers, which was which was uh, actually free. <laughs> it, you know, the, so so the 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 sort of um, you know organic grassroots process was actually part of the mission of the land grant universities, and of course that changed gradually over a number of years. And the linkages now with land grants, although there's lots of good work being done being done at land grants, and I have a great relationship with our local uh, Cornell Extension and everything, but the, the um, you know, largely the links as far as research go have to do with industrial ag with the land grants, and that's a very um, uh, sort of disturbing process, that process. So essentially the educational institutes uh, that were designed initially to to serve and be a resource for farmers are now being a, serving and being a resource for a very small group of 
farmers. Yeah, yeah, the, the, that's that's the dominant paradigm. I I I do want to mention that there's lots of good work and and you know quite a few good people working for the land grants who who I'm very thankful for too. But uh, the the general pattern, uh, we hope um, you know it needs some shifting. And uh, let's hope that we can really, really can make that happen in the in the next uh, twenty years or so. Well, I was so I was speaking with a seed farmer out in Missouri earlier today, who um, you know he produces on, on contract. You know, he grows corn seed for corn and seed for soy. And we're talking a lot about how that transition for him, for him on his farm, he went from a very diversified farm mm-hmm. over, over his, his lifetime to producing seed uh, on contract. And mm-hmm. I, I'm just curious, you know, what, what, would you, what do you say to those farmers who, who are farming in the middle who have been, you know, kind of getting squeezed? Mm-hmm. Uh, it feels like on both sides they don't really fit necessarily into the niche local market you know they they've been farming professionally in their family for generations mm-hmm. um you know they've inherited a, a way of life a, a mindset um how do we how do we open that conversation up uh well that's a good question <laughs> how did your conversation go with that farmer i'm curious um you know it really mostly comes down to education and uh and we have to you know we have to continue to um understand from from our our past um you know so once what happens is that you know it's this thing it's called a progress trap i quoted this from a friend of mine tom wessels who talked about the progress trap that once you've gone down a certain road it's very hard to go back um but you know there's ways of getting back or not going too deeply down that one road so uh i don't i don't there there are multiple ways to open up the conversations the most important thing is that the conversations have to happen among many people and there has to be a recognition of uh, uh that there is not only one way of doing things basically yeah and and i think too you touch on that also in the book kind of the danger both the danger and the gifts of, of technology. So, mm-hmm. you know, I don't think anyone is advocating that we go back to a time where we're, you know, plowing fields with, uh, uh, you know, a horse or oxen and that, you know, there there is a certain amount of, like, shift that's happened in agriculture that I think on, on scale we're quite thankful for, mm-hmm. um, both from a labor component of not having to do certain types of things or, or as much of them, but also from a, from a, you know, I don't know. It's like it's it's not anti-technology, but there is technology with care. So I wonder yes. how do we how do we think about innovation? What questions do we need to be asking? Who can we trust in that in those conversations as we're seeing these things evolve and being told, hey, we have to feed the world here. You know, the world is growing like that. I feel like is always the kind of thing that gets put back um, onto this conversation that I always. I have a hard time answering that. Yeah, no, I know. I know. And that's the, when I've, I've been reading from this book and people, you know, the two questions that people keep asking are, you know, what, what do we do in the face of, you know, the, the mammoth, you know, the mammoth uh, uh, industry that, that is, is the ruling force right now? And then what can I do individually? You know, I mean, those are the things that people keep asking and, and that's sort of, 
where we are in the world, and we're all we're all kind of aware of that. What I would point to is are is the extraordinary um, uh, the the amount of, the the amount of young people who who are so. Uh, Incredibly excited about you know learning uh, learning ways of uh, of taking care of, of of the soil and taking care taking care of the earth and I, I you know we used to have to l- sort of look around everywhere to find someone to join us in the work we were doing and, and now it's just extraordinary uh, the people that come to us and it's not just this one farm it's happening all around the country I know because I've traveled around and talked to lots of people and and I think. We have to go to that generation uh, who can actually help to lead us in a place that uh, you know the older generation can't quite see. I think you know. I think it's bubbling up, is what I what I'm trying to say. And and again, that's what I see as the promise. Um, I, I don't I don't think we have to be stuck or feel that we're stuck because uh, you know the the error would be to uh, continually claim that there's one magic bullet which is going to help us to do this thing you know which we're calling feed the world but there there's an awful lot of people who are uh, willing to be there to innovate and to help us get there. I um, kind of on a similar note, I, one, of, one of the chapters I really I really like the way you talked about um, burdock root and <laughs> and yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this idea that looking um, at at burdock and, and that being an inspiration possibly for the <laughs> creation of Velcro and this yeah. kind of brought this other kind of thing to me that by looking very closely and thinking very deeply about growing food and food production and and, and seeds that we may find unexpected inspiration for, for other things. And I wonder if you could share a little bit of, about, about that burdock story for our listeners. <laughs> yeah, because uh, so with the one thing about burdock, I think I started off talking about uh, tenacity. And, and, uh, and so I, I, I was claiming that burdock, which is, for those who don't know, is, um, is a very deep root, uh, much deeper than a, than a carrot. But, um, so uh, what I like is the index to, to my book actually has a, uh, under T, it begins with tenacity of farmers. And I, I like that the, uh, the index maker came up with that. So burdock is the most tenacious of roots. And uh, the, 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 uh, one of the stories was that the I've forgotten his name right now, but his he was out for a walk with his dog and uh, and he came back uh, and they were covered with with the burrs, which are you know part part of of the burdock plant and then he he for some reason put it under a microscope and he found this sort of the hook pattern of the actual bird, which makes it stick to you, and this is, of course, what nature invented to, you know, to take the seed, you know, to sp- to spread the seed, and uh, and he got the idea of creating Velcro out of out of those burrs that came out of the burdock. It's such a great story, and uh, and it comes from one of the most tenacious of plants, and uh, I don't know, I view that as a kind of tenacity that someone was able to, you know, n- not. Um, you know, swear at all these burrs and throw them away, but instead put it under a microscope and then, you know, found something transformative out of that, basically. Yeah, taking a second look. And I think that's yeah. what I so enjoyed about the book is that all the kind of the the vignettes, the, the stories uh, mm-hmm. of seeds and the kind of, in, I don't want to, it's not like you anthrop, how do you say that, anthropomorphize. You didn't give this, the seeds almost felt like, uh, 
like alive with conscience in a way and strategy for propagation. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean that. So the title "Seed Time" uh, I derive from um, uh, from Wordsworth. "Fair seed time had my soul" is is the the phrase from Wordsworth. Um, But the seed time that I was implying. At you know throughout the whole book is really the sort of magical realm that that seeds give us, and that it's so much a part. Our, 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 the world that we know has been given to us by the angiosperms, and who you know are the the seed bearing plants. And um, uh, it's it's so extraordinary to look at the uh, the whole the whole realm of that. That um, I was hoping that the the title seed time would would you know, give that to people. Well, Scott, we are going to take just a, a quick break. And when we come back, I want to talk a little bit about the importance of seeds in the face of our ever-changing climate. So hang tight. We'll be back mm-hmm. after a short break. Okay, thank you. In her garden An old pair of jeans And she smiled at the sun and the pale olive trees She wiped the dirt from her hands As she stood up to leave And the earth opened up And she was taken from me This show is brought to you in conjunction with the Food Book Fair. The Food Book Fair brings together food enthusiasts, chefs, artists, writers, designers, and publishers to celebrate the intersection between food culture and food systems. The Food Book Fair is supported by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. Squarespace includes beautifully designed, customizable templates, drag-and-drop tools, e-commerce, and 24-7 support. Start a trial with no credit card required. When you decide to sign up, make sure to use the offer code FBF14 to get 10% off your first purchase and to show your support for Heritage Radio Network. Squarespace, a better web starts with your website. And we're back. You're tuned into the Farm Report. I'm your host, Aaron Fairbanks, and we are on the line with Scott Chasky talking about his new book, Seed Time, on the history, husbandry, politics, and premise of seeds. So I know that one of the the main arguments that we hear about why it's important to protect um, biodiversity and protect the diversity of seeds is because we don't know the future. Um, We don't know the kind of resources that we're going to need as regards to to climate change or disease. And and can you talk a little bit about um, what role seeds can play in the face of a shifting climate? Well, we, you know, just simply stated we just need 
to encourage diversity. So um, the more uh, the more varieties that we can uh, experiment with that will lead us in that direction, which means uh, you know training more people uh, to to uh, breed. Uh, varieties that will uh, be able to adapt to um, to the climate that's changing constantly, and um, you know uh, the research has been going in the opposite direction. So um, basically, we have to reverse that and um, and conduct more research that will uh, you know give us plants that will be able to adapt. And and there's a much uh, the the greater genetic variety that we can encourage, uh, the more adaptation uh, will be possible. Basically, and why you know why look to seeds? Why not look to the lab? Why not create our kind of perfect you know plant? Well, because because um, <laughs> nature is wiser. <laughs> we, you know, it, there's nothing wrong with work going on in the laboratory, and and you know, we've been manipulating plants for you know thousands upon thousands of years. In fact, the lab work that's going on in a place like the Land Institute with uh, Wes Jackson is something that we really need. He's trying to. If people don't know about the work he's doing. He's trying to uh, create a uh, a perennial. Uh, wheat and perennial grains, which will replace the annuals, which um, he sees as the greatest problem of, of agriculture. So we do need that work, but we also need to work within systems. We need to understand the natural systems and to constantly work within them if we want to uh, have plants that will be able and understand, you know, plants how plants will be able to adapt to the the changes in those systems. One of the things I always find, uh, yeah, a little perplexing or just challenging for me when I'm thinking in particular about um, genetically modified um, seeds and and plants in that realm is that there's a lot of really smart people investing in that technology, and I think mm-hmm. most particularly about Bill and Melinda Gates. And I'm wondering, how do you make sense of that? I don't make a lot of sense of that, to be quite honest. I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I don't know. That that makes no sense to me because uh, the um, it's it's the the magic bullet approach. You know, that one technology will you know uh, be the solution has never worked, and it and you know the last the we saw it happen with the green revolution, and uh, you know that was. Um, Proclaimed as as you know the greatest uh, greatest invention that would you know feed the world and and that didn't work and it's not it, no single approach like that will it's just not it's just not the way natural systems you know operate and um, I don't you know some 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 of those solutions just catch the eye and the ear of people who are willing to invest for for perfectly good reasons you know the and and i i do understand that part of it however um a much broader approach is is what we need and 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 that's that basically well i want to kind of shift a little bit into a slightly more delicious area um and talk a little bit about garlic because you you devote a whole chapter <laughs> in your book to okay. garlic so you know why what is it about this um 
what is it about this that was so worthy of, of so much space for you, if you can share with us? <laughs> I, yes, no, I, mean, I actually have said, I wonder if I can write a book that doesn't have garlic in it. Uh, <laughs> it just happens to be my favorite crop, and I love planting it. And I don't know, I, I, this, is, this is sort of, you know, what any, any gardener or, or a grower, um, you know, you, you find something that um, leads you deeper into an understanding of all the processes that you're working with, with soil and, 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 uh, and temperature and all forms of weather and, and the plant life itself. And I, you know, I love the taste of garlic, so it starts with that. And uh, I cook with it every day. And then um, I love the process of learning about it eight months of the year because that's how long it's in the ground. So it's sort of an unusual plant. You plant it in the uh, you plant it in the autumn and and it overwinters and uh, it doesn't actually form the bulb until the following June and then you harvest it in July. So you get to know it quite well. So it's something somewhat in between an annual and a perennial. And I suppose. You know, people who love trees or one particular type of tree feel the same thing when they come to some understanding where they're where they're closer to the you know what interconnects us with with uh, the the entire natural world. And I guess I get that from from garlic. Glad you brought it. It is a delicious topic. I'm glad you brought it. <laughs> well, <laughs> um, and to me, I guess there there's some things I'm always you know I, I always think of this. Um, I can't even remember who the quote was from, but they're talking about, you know, people ride around in cars all the time and have really no idea how that works, like how an engine works on a really fundamental level. There's so mm-hmm. many things in life that you experience on a daily basis that, uh, you know, I don't stop to question. And mm-hmm. I think uh, garlic was one of the, one of them. And I think what, what jumped out at me about that chapter, aside from your obvious love for it, was thinking that like, oh, uh, a garlic seed and a garlic clove are, are essentially one and the same. I was, mm-hmm. I was surprised by that. So for folks who maybe were in a similar position to me, maybe you can talk uh, to us a little bit about how one um, cultivates or saves garlic seed. Yeah, so you basically, um, you plant one clove. So say you, the type of garlic that we plant is, uh, is called a hardneck variety. And it puts out this beautiful thing called a scape. And if, 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 if people have not seen that, I would encourage them to go, go look at a farm that grows hardneck garlic because it's so beautiful when these scapes come out. And it's a, it's a sort of twirly. It's called a flower stalk, which is not really accurate because it doesn't really form a flower at the end the way uh, other allium plants um, like onions do. So um, garlic really produces vegetatively and the way that a, um, a, a daffodil bulb or a narcissi bulb does. So you plant one clove and... Um, you know, you have to separate the bulb, obviously, in the in the autumn just before you're planting. You plant one clove, and, you know, a magical thing happens. It actually clones itself is what it does. That process takes, you know, as I said, about eight months for for it to do that. And it, you know, simp- simply clones onto, on, onto itself. And, and from one clove planted, you get five or six in the type of garlic that we grow, uh, it, it, many soft-neck garlics. Um, you get smaller cloves. You might get anywhere from 10 to 15. So, um, again, it's quite a magical process to see. Um, the amazing thing about, you know, so we, we plant about 750 pounds of 
garlic and uh, yearly, and, and, and that's about 45,000 cloves. So um, all of them, one by one, you know, hand hand seeded. So that's that's what we we refer to as, as seed. Uh, it's you know technically a, a, a vegetative clove. Well, Scott, we are unfortunately out of time, but it's been a real pleasure um, chatting with you, and it was really lovely to get a chance to um, to take a look through and read some of your book. And I would definitely encourage folks who are New York City located to to hear more from him uh, again he'll be speaking on a panel on organic um, food and scale and scope at the food book fair on april 27th and you can get tickets by visiting www.foodbookfair.com and you can find scott's book wherever fine books are sold it's been a real pleasure thanks for being on the show today yeah well it's a very it's a, been a treat to be on the show with you on my birthday Oh, well, happy birthday. I had no idea. <laughs> I'm so happy that we ended with garlic. <laughs> we may have like a garlic cake or something, you know. <laughs> uh, thank you. Wonderful. Well, thanks so much, and thanks for everyone for tuning in. Um, okay. This show, like all 35 of our live weekly shows, are available for free through Stitcher or iTunes. You can also find them by visiting our website where all of our shows are archived. It's www.heritageradionetwork.org. We are a member-supported organization, so if you believe in what we do, please support us by clicking that Donate tab and becoming a member today. Thanks so much for listening, and stay tuned in. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website, or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.